Good morning, everybody. Um, kind of what we're going to go through here is so this was some material that we actually presented both to uh, the members at the House Retreat and then actually got invited, invited to policy lunch. Um, so we ended up doing it to a, a variety of centers. It's a variation of this sort of updated. Um, the idea here is to give you some sense of kind of what happened in terms of the last election, where things are, where the electors at, and why they're where they're at. So I want to start off with um, this particular fellow who probably, I think, represents kind of the sense of after the 2016 election, kind of what their personal expectations were in terms of what they were looking for in terms of their elected representatives. Something has to change. The middle class is shrinking, and that, 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 this has to be, this is our last chance. This is the bottom of ninth, and there's two out. And so using Continuing with his analogy there in terms of it's the bottom of the ninth and it's two outs, um, the, the, the idea was as we went into um, the fall, having not done tax reform or healthcare or anything, there was this, it was, we were, Republicans were in really bad shape. Having said that, passing the tax bill is sort of, to me, was sort of the quote, and I get it following up, along with this analogy, um, is we were able to put sort of runners in scoring position. Right? <laughs> Um, and so, so the idea, we haven't won the game, but at least we, we now have two outs, bottom of the ninth, but at least we have somebody um, in scoring position. Um, the idea here that I want to go through with you is sort of give you some ideas and information to give you sort of a quality of that, the, the analogy. So having said that, going back to the, the, the election, moving forward, um, off your elections for the party in power is always a problem. I mean, it's always very difficult. Um, and this is going to be no exception, um, and it should be no surprise. Um, having said that, one of the things that we saw from the last election was what was the driving thing that people were looking for, um, and this is from the exit polls. The number one attribute that they were looking for in terms of a candidate um, was from bringing to change 39%, and Trump overwhelmingly won those 82 to 40. I'm sure on the Clinton side, they were very frustrated that somehow they became viewed as the status quo. But ultimately, ultimately that was that was the dynamic for them. Um, and Trump was viewed to change. But one other quick thing in terms of, 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 of that. Um, and thinking through where this was particularly prevalent, um, if you look at the exit polls from the West Belt states, you would see that in fact more so they were looking for change. So with that, the challenge here is in terms of what we've done so far, um, are we part of the change or just the status quo, right? Um, and so looking at the tax bill, we posed this question, if Congress passed a tax reform plan that includes tax cuts for the middle class, would you consider this the right kind of change that you voted for in six out of 10 minutes and yes? Um, having said that, that's their view. The interpretation in terms of the media, however, has been a little harsher. Um, for those of you who um, I actually follow him on Twitter, um, and it's just very aggravating. <laughs> it's like every single thing dealing with the tax bill was wrong, right? But it's you know what, what folks are saying. Having said that, um, the the voter attitude um, in terms of the impact of media and helping you understand national issues, news events, and actions of elected officials. Thirty-one percent say positive impact, forty percent negative impact. By the way, there's sort of an underlying element in terms of party affiliation, sort of driving that as a surprise. Um, and here's somebody sort of describing their view in terms of the impact. It's like this culture of like spin in media and don't focus on the actual facts or task. It's more, Just you know. Just make up whatever you want. Yeah, like the point news. across. You know? You want to say that. Constant hit piece. Mm -hmm. After his face, after hit piece. <laughs> and so actually, 
the electorate does sort of get that. And when you pose the question in terms of what's most influential in your political views and people's given street choices, interesting enough, um, your own experience, not surprisingly, was number one, your family number two, your education number three, uh, your news and media sources actually number four. Right? And so the sense of, like, uh, in terms of what's influential, um, you actually put them far down the list. Um, and to give you another sense of being more precise in terms of, of how they got to that conclusion. I get notifications on my phone for news. CNN already says, you're going to get more money in your paycheck. But here, here's why it's bad. So they're already attacking it. And it's like, it's they're, they're going to gonna spin it and get it in people's heads that it's bad before. So, um, so again, sort of take part in the sense of, of we have an electorate that does sort of understand what they're watching. Um, so in terms of trying to, to think through, because I wanted to sort of come up with like the example of, of how the media is trying to bill uh, the tax bill, um, I went through a variety, of, a variety of different sources and actually came up with this as perhaps probably the best example because what's occurring here as a dynamic is this isn't just simply the media being critical. Um, it's a fundamental challenge in terms of the economic theory, in terms of what Republicans and conservatives have. And what you're going to see is this fundamental, this statement sort of going after that fundamental premise in terms of that economic theory. There has been no study that has been able to somehow reinforce this idea that tax cuts do translate to economic growth. The one time it did was when we went down from 90% um, with Kennedy down uh, and got rid of that tax hike. But where is the analysis here? I know you guys scrubbed one from the Treasury Department on one having to do with corporate tax cuts. Where is the analysis that says this is going to lead to economic growth? And I would say that's pretty prevalent, right? I mean, most of the news reports, the underlying belief system is in fact that dynamic. So um, this goes back to you. I I worked at Heritage back in the mid-90s in terms of doing a econometric analysis, so you're about to suck it through some of this. So let's go back to the Kennedy tax cut that he was talking about, 1964, the two, year, the two years after, um, economic growth was greater than 6% um, in terms of uh, uh, revenues by the end of the decade. Um, we were up 66% and 11.8 million jobs were uh, created during that time period. Go to the Reagan tax cut in 81, and the dynamic in terms of the Reagan tax cut, it really didn't fully implement until 83, just the way, the way it was written. So, so this is 83 forward. So from 83 forward, for the next seven years, GDP was equal to a greater than 3.5%. Revenues over that time period increased 65%, and 1.1 million jobs were created. Um, go to the tax cut in 1997, and most people don't remember being the director of planning, it was sort of bigger for me. Um, it was a $400 billion tax cut. It was actually more the chem style supply side tax cut. It was more focused on capital gains. Um, having said that, um, it was GDP from that point forward, 4% through 2000. Um, balanced budget through 2001, the first time we balanced the budget since Neil Armstrong would walk on the moon. Um, and again, over that same time period, 8.2 million jobs created. Go to the Bush tax cuts in terms of 2003. GDP in the next two years were equal to a greater than 3.3%. This is a staggering number. From 2003 to 2007, yearly revenues increased $786 billion, the largest expansion of revenue in the history of the country. Um, and, and to take it a step farther, by the way, everybody talks about how the Bush tax cuts in fact contributed to deficit. Well, actually, over that same time period, 2003 to 2007, 
uh, the deficit was cut by 57%, actually in 2007 to $161 billion, right? We can't even get to 161 I mean, that, that, seems, that seems like such a far away number at this point. Um, having also said that, um, there were 7.8 million jobs created. Interesting enough, when, they, when Bush did those tax cuts, he promised, right, in the 2004 election that he would cut the deficit in half and actually met the promise and what happened once the housing market collapsed, that was a whole different economic dynamic. So going back to Chuck's basic argument, so the new tax cuts create economic growth, well, in 64, 6.5%, 3.5%, 81, 4.5%, 97, 2003, 3.3%, so the answer is yes, it does. And I think everybody in this room, one of the things that if you walk away with nothing else um, in terms of our economic theory, at least up to this point, um, has been successful, right? And that's the underlying challenge that, that you see occurring. So with that, I'm going to have Myra go through, so, okay, so what's the value proposition of the electric in terms of the tax cut? So before we get into the use of the tax plan itself, um, I want you to be able to hear from voters about what's happening in their own uh, economic situations. I can't really afford to invest as much in my retirement because I'm living paycheck to paycheck as it is. I think more or less, I, we do, as my family, we do live more paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, the housing economy has gone up, but so have the cost to, to live. Priorities are a big thing. You know, I go without a lot because I try to save as much as possible. In this dynamic of living paycheck to paycheck, you have about one out of two Americans saying that they are in the category of living paycheck to paycheck. And taking that a step further, you have about one out of three saying that you're only $400 away from a financial crisis. And here's someone um, in that position talking about what life's like for her. I have $9.50 in my checking account right now. And my husband asked me today, when was I going to go shopping for groceries? And I said, I don't know. Maybe when I come up that I have a card and I can go shopping tomorrow. But I said, that's it. You know, that $9.50 has to last us until February the 1st. Those groups were done on January 17th. So the $9.50 had to last her February 1st, which is really hard to imagine. And one of the reasons why she's in that position is because of cost of living. And in the survey, we ask people what's giving them the most difficulty with cost of living. You can see that cost of health care, um, including premiums and deductibles, is, is the number one item, followed by taxes, which is interesting because taxes are considered cost of living, food costs, utility costs. But ultimately, um, cost of health care is really what's giving people um, the most difficulty right now in terms of cost of living. And this also leads to a lot of concerns about retirement from the survey. Um, in terms of people's confidence about their um, their retirement plan, you can see that that largest group, the 38%, is only somewhat confident. Um, and we look at the percentage of people who say that they don't think that they will ever retire. We're hearing that a lot. People say, I just, I think I'll keep working until I die. You've got one out of three Americans who say that they don't see themselves being able to retire. And there's someone describing that. I have a feeling I'm going to die behind a desk still working. <laughs> I'm 98 years old. There, there's no such thing as retirement at this point. Yes, we're saving and saving and saving, but the cost of living is going up, and as you say, so there's really no chance. So I think that gives you a, a flavor of, of the things that people are facing in their in their households. So in the survey, we post a series of potential personal outcomes. What's really important to people at a personal level? And you can see that um, the top items really reflect those concerns about retirement and cost of living. Um, being able to have quality, affordable health care, having a secure retirement, 
see terrorism up here that's generally among Republicans, but ultimately those top tier items really are about um, cost of living, uh, what's happening with the household budgets, and the concern about retirement. So in that context, let's take a look at where um, the public is on the recently passed tax plan. So in terms of current views about it, you can see that it's, this is from the end of last week. Um, it's a soft positive with 42% saying that they favor the plan, 35% opposed. But going back to where things stood last November, and this was prior to passage of the plan, things were in a pretty difficult starting position, 30% um, favor, 47% opposed. But that was largely a reflection of the Republican brand. When you say, you know, how do you feel about a Republican plan, and people did not yet know what was in it, it was largely a reflection of how they felt about Republicans. But you can see by this point, we have, we have improved things, although there's still a long way to go with that. Um, and looking at the provisions of the plan, these are the four that people tend to find most applicable to their own and helpful to them. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that people are going to see that this plan really works is to be able to understand how they're going to, how they're going to personally benefit. And these were, um, these were the ones that people tend to find most helpful to them. And you can see that after um, going from the initial starting point of 42-35 to after they understand what's in the plan with basic provisions, um, things can move pretty dramatically. So the good news is um, that we can't move people on that. So the question is how do, how do people think that whether the plan worked? And this is also from the survey. Um, making a judgment about how you think the economy is going overwhelmingly, it's those personal outcomes. It's personal economic issues like income, wages, cost of living. Those macroeconomic figures are going to be important, how the stock market is doing, how the unemployment rate is doing. Those will be influential in shaping how people view it, but ultimately it's going to be what's happening with my personal economic situation. So that's why it's so important to really help people understand what, how the plan is going to personally benefit them. Um, so what's the most compelling reason for tax reform to people? We have. What's the compelling reason for tax reform at this point? The compelling, compelling reason is for us to not pay so many taxes. <laughs> I mean, you look at your paycheck and you look at how much you make, and then you look at how much you take home. So, as we've been in this debate over tax reform, I think that's a pretty important uh, reminder that to the average person, that is the most compelling reason. So, how are they going to know that it worked? We have to see something's going to actually happen. We have to, you know, you can talk about it, but we, we need to see the change. We need to see the positive changes that are coming our way. So, they're, they don't want to just hear talk about it, they want to be able to see the proof points of what's really happening with it, how they're going to benefit. And just a, a, historic, a historical reminder for Republicans this is from 2010, the midterm exit polls. By two to one, people did not think that President Obama's stimulus package had worked. Um, he was doing the ACA, he was on the other topic, people were still concerned about the economy, but they also didn't believe that the plan worked. And so that's a lesson for Republicans that you know, we've only just started um, selling the benefits of this plan. It has to be a long-term, sustained case for it, um, because it's really going to be up to um, members and staff and everybody to really help people like her uh, be able to see the changes that are coming her way and how she's going to personally benefit. And one last thing. Uh, the ideology of the lecture, we, we get lots of questions about how people, where people are falling ideologically. Um, we took a look at the ideological spectrum on a scale of one to nine, with one being very liberal, nine being very conservative, where people place themselves. They came in around 5.3. This is center right. Um, economic issues, however, they were a little farther to the right, at a 5.6. Uh, foreign affairs, also farther to the right, 5.65. But on um, social issues, in this case, uh, that was defined as issues like healthcare and education. 
fight for women through any moral issues, fight for women issue. So for Republicans, economic issues is where um, the electorate's going to be a little bit farther to the right. And you can see where they put Republicans in Congress at so 6.2. Notice that the overall electorate is closer to Republicans on, on those economic issues. Democrats in Congress farther to the left at a 4.1. And President Trump, they have him a little bit farther to the right. So the takeaway here is ideologically, the electorate views themselves generally closer to Republicans in Congress than Democrats in Congress, and particularly on the economic issues. So as Republicans are looking to build a majority coalition, focusing on the economic issues is going to be a, a major opportunity for them. So um, turn back to David for strategic plans. Let me go to that, that last chart for just a second. The, the way to sort of put that in context is sort of think of, in terms of game, game theory and, and transportation costs. The idea is that um, people have to travel less to get to our position than they do to their position. Uh, the one challenge is we have to have a position, right? In terms of, in terms of stuff, I'm quite serious about that in the sense that we have that product out there. Um, because one of the things that you, we run into sometimes, we so focus on them. Um, that people forget that there's even a destination on our side. And so as a result, a lot, a lot of times you see that you see people default saying, well, I don't know where they are. Yes, that's longer than I want to walk to, but at least it's a place to walk to, right? And that's sort of a challenge for everybody in the room in terms of, of that's why it's really important to define choices, not just simply say, not just simply say why their idea doesn't work. So getting to strategic dynamics, um, in terms of as we're looking, looking forward here, um, not to sort of start everybody off with sort of like a scary moment, but here's a scary moment. <laughs> um, and the right, right, if you were asleep, now you're on. Um, the, the, the dynamic here is, is obviously in terms of what we're doing at the legislative level, um, the ability and use of both uh, the filibuster, but also just the sort of slow walking of virtually everything um, has been a huge element in terms of just simply what we get done. You know, there, there's only so much time in, in the day, um, and in a lot of cases, a lot of that time is being taken up through a lot of procedural stuff. Um, having, having said that, that is, that is a challenge. But I'm also going to suggest to you, um, given, given that let's assume we could pass everything between now and the end of the year. Um, the bottom line is this is a Congress, the signature um, piece of legislation that we've been passed would have been the tax bill. So ultimately, um, we have gotten through the key piece that, would, that people would remember, even if everything else was passed. Um, so with that, let me get to the other strategic dynamic, which is Trump job approval. The most recent survey we had, we had it at 4351. Historically, in terms of off-year elections, that's not a great number. Um, that usually has, um, in terms of other presidents that have had similar numbers, um, that's created a very difficult uh, um, dynamic for that, that individual's um, congressional candidates. Um, but having said that, let's go back to 2016. Uh, this is from the exit polls. 60% um, unfavorable. Okay, so think, so think about this. With 60% unfavorables, um, we still carry the Ohio Senate, Pennsylvania Senate, and Wisconsin Senate seats. If I had told you in 2015 that we had we were have a candidate at the top of the ticket that had those level of unfavorables and we were going to carry those three Senate seats, if I just told you that we had a neutral candidate and we were going to carry those three Senate seats, um, everybody would have been quite surprised by that conclusion. Obviously, 60% um, unfavorable um, is, is a, quite a negative dynamic. Um, and having said that, this is, a, this is somebody who pulled off something that actually uh, it's been the last person to do with Reagan in terms of carrying the four Rust Belt states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, and Wisconsin. 
Um, so the conclusion here is that, that his job approval is not a good number. It's not like this is an asset. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is we could, we could actually do well with him having 60% unfavorable. So I'm not sure what these numbers mean. Okay, I know I'm supposed to tell you what these numbers mean. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, I'm not sure. I will say they're not good, right? I'm not arguing that point. And I'm not saying that, that, that in this dynamic that, that we would make. I mean, we would much rather have it be um, above water as opposed to below water. But I'm also saying we don't know what it means. Right? I mean, the fact, the, the fact that uh, uh, Ron Johnson can carry Wisconsin um, with, a, with a candidate at the top of the table that's 60% favorable is a pretty remarkable outcome. Um, so, but having also said that, um, the dynamic here is, is you don't want to have people focused on the job approval. You want to have them focused on the accomplishments, um, and that and that and that's a key element here. And that's going to be sort of the responsibility of everybody here, making sure that people understand what we've actually accomplished, as opposed to not that you have control over this. This is important to anyway. Um, having said that, the four most recent surveys um, in terms of where the generic ballot. What you, the first thing to notice here is there's a huge range, right? Um, so you have Reuters with Democrats at plus one and The Economist with Democrats at plus nine. Just to give you a sense, minus six is really the sort of threshold number. Anything that is larger than six points in terms of favoring the Democrats, um, or Republicans, but in this case the Democrats, um, means that it's probably going to be a very difficult environment. Um, and it's more so at the House level of the Senate. Again, the dynamics in terms of the seats that are up. Um, it, this is still important to look at, um, but obviously the, the sort of playing field is a little bit more favorable than what the House is dealing with. So I'm going to talk at least in this particular case more so in terms of the House side. Um, anything below minus six um, is a competitive environment, right? Um, if it's at minus three, minus four, Republicans will lose seats in the House, um, but there's a reasonable chance in terms of being able to hold on to the majority. Um, if it's minus, if it's minus nine, um, that's a real problem. Just to give you a sense, the last time, the, the, the two times when the Republicans won, um, in terms of flipping, um, the percentage in terms of the difference, uh, in terms of the total vote cast was, was just a hair under seven percent for both. When uh, Democrats won, it was closer to nine. Um, back in 2006. Um, so that, that gives you a sense of in terms of the range. Having said that, um, and looking at these numbers, I mean, it's just unclear where things are. Right. Um, that's actually good news. Okay. Um, I'd rather be unclear than certain about you know being minus nine. Okay. <laughs> um, but but one key element here is in terms of one of the challenges here addresses problems that are important to you. Uh, the public still views that Democrats in Congress are doing that more than Republicans in Congress. Part of that is I would also suggest once we did the tax bill, um, there was a lot of getting to other things as opposed to sort of reinforcing that. Um, so some of the problems that people are looking at to see addressed and think in terms of what could come next. Let me really focus in on that top line, the address cost of living. Um, cost of living is a very complex issue in the sense that there are a lot of elements to it. So think of it in terms of uh, it's, it's not just simply um, the sense of whether you're treading water or not. It's looking at all bills. So it's health care, it's uh, home heating costs, electric costs, utility costs, uh, mortgage costs, 
um, gasoline costs, food costs, clothing costs. I mean, basically what it is, is looking at the looking at the sort of end of each week, and it's like, how much money do you have in terms of being able to pay bills? So looking as, as Myra was describing, that over half the countries are doing themselves living paycheck to paycheck, and they want out of that somehow. And so cost of living is really the solution in terms of how you address those concerns. So having said that, um, you can isolate individual costs in terms of trying to, to um, and again, you see Democrats doing this specifically around the issue of healthcare, but people are looking at the, at the broader overall. Healthcare is certainly in terms of healthcare cost and dynamic, but the fact that they are going to have some, some more money in terms of their paycheck because of paying less in taxes, the fact that public utilities sort of across the country have started to drop some of their, their costs as well, it's the overall impact. Having said that, it's important to address all of them. But it's also important to understand that people are sort of looking at the bottom line. Um, what they're trying to figure out is, okay, am I still treading the water or not? And that's really the challenge. And what you also, the other element in terms of treading water that's occurring is when you're doing that, you can't say for retirement. Right? And, and the level of concern that exists out there that people are going to have to work to their seventh <coughs> just quick and criticizing things. One of the things about the 2008 recession that we saw. Um, that really impacted everybody. Saw that you know, we lost eight million in fourteen months. That's a staggering number. But the other element that people tend to forget was the huge amount of wealth that was lost in terms of retirement. Okay, and what what happened as a result of that was suddenly you had people who thought they were ready to retire, and now they have to go back to work. Right? Okay. But by the way, um, they didn't necessarily have the skill set to go back to work. Right? And so they were like taking sort of menial jobs. Okay. Um, and so what was happening is then their kids, you know, say 30 to 55, were sort of having to help supplement. Okay, while they were help supplementing, let's see, their kid just came home from college and rather than being able to find a job, now they're in the basement. So they're having to take care of their kid and pay the, the college loans while helping their parents out. So what are they burning through? Their retirement money. All right, so now that as they're getting old, you heard them say, you know, he's going to live till he's 90, right? So what's happened to their kids, right? Well, their kids just saw both their parents and grandparents get wiped out, and so they've got they've got a very cautious approach in terms of things like that they're doing things. So 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 this whole idea dynamic of cost of living and trading water and being able to break out of that cycle um, is still very prevalent. So that's why when good economic news emerges, people are kind of like, "Why do you hear it? I want to see it." Okay, and, and, and that is fair. That is fair, and that and part of the challenge here in terms of the tax cut, where where people like the idea in terms of having more money in their pocket, they want to see it. They want to be able to understand what it means and what it's going to mean to them day to day. Um, so addressing cost of living is is a is a much broader issue. Um, tax cuts feed into that in a very positive way, but you want to look at other elements as well. Having said that, one of the things that we've seen um, prior to. Um, uh, the tax bill. Um, in terms of issue handling, you see the Republicans are slightly behind in terms of the economy and jobs, um, and well behind in terms of taxes. So the initial part, part of the part of the challenge we're having in terms of taxes, and all of you went through this, is since we didn't have a clear plan, because we're all sort of like working through what that would look like, right? You know, we, it was hard for us to sort of lay out. Here's what we're going to do because we weren't quite sure we were still negotiating. Um, the Democrats however sort of cherry pick things and sort of created a, a challenging dynamic. By mid-January, mid however, things have changed. And now, at the end of April, we, people now have a very, have a more positive view in terms of how we handle the economy and jobs. But notice the taxes we still have, we have still not allowed our um, To a large degree, that, that's because for a variety of reasons we pivoted to other things, which I would suggest it was not necessarily that we should be doing. Um, and then we have to win this particular argument. And so, 
Well, how do we do that? Is it through voter benefits? And here's the key strategic that you're going to look at one element to sort of define the, the, the setting the context for um, how people view whether change was achieved at the scale they wanted to deal with this question. Do you, and this is we just did this, do you think this plan will or will not lower taxes for people like you? 38% say will, 44% say will not. Obviously, that number's got to be incorrect on Facebook, given the fact that 70% of the country doesn't itemize it. And clearly, um, uh, by doubling the standard deduction along rates, it's going to positively impact all those folks. Um, you're, you, you know that number on the left hand side should be higher, but the problem is they don't know that. Right? I, I will tell you, we, we have sat down and, and done focus groups where we actually lay out what the provisions were, and people are stunned by what's in the bill. They, they have no idea. And a great good one, yes, sorry. In <laughs> um, a good one. Um, and so we see, gee, doubling the standard deduction, lowering the rates, the child tax credit, the fact that, that retirement goes in size. Right? Those are real positives, but they don't know it, right? Because what are they hearing? They're hearing John Harvard, right? And that's sort of, sorry, not the response vote, but that's kind of like kind of the, one of the jobs that everybody in this room sort of has, has in terms of making sure that that's, that's <coughs> because, okay, see old church on here. Um, because when we passed the tax bill, that was the beginning of the end. It was basically the end of the beginning, right? That was just ending the first phase. Now everybody has to know what's in it, what it means to them, and how it's going to impact them on a personal basis. And that's incredibly important because this isn't just simply about this election. Um, this is about being able to show why our economic theories impact what's right for this country and where we need to go. Um, so with that, and armed with, with, with that, with that information in terms of uh, being able to go to find those benefits um, and be able to engage folks, in fact, uh, and watch them. I um, appreciate that. Hopefully, what that will do is give us that quality of that um, to drop on the one one. So, with that, and, and not to dump everything on everybody, but to some degree, um, that's your responsibility in terms of being able to do that, um, making sure that your particular members have that knowledge um, and can go have those conversations with their constituents. We have time for a couple of questions. Any from the audience? Yes, go ahead. Do, do we know anything about like voter turnout in midterms and kind of what drives people? Or um, I mean, yeah. a couple things to that. Um, one of the one of the elements that seemed to emerge after the twenty sixteen election um, was this sort of increase in democratic activity, um, and there was a rationale for that. What that they were stunned by the fact that she lost, Hillary uh, Clinton lost, um, and they were pretty unhappy about. Right. Um, so they were they got really engaged. Having said that, um, they're and looking at some of the more recent primaries and, and a lot of people focused on Ohio in particular that it seemed like the Republican base sort of came back to sort of match the Democratic base in terms of activity. Uh, interesting, but it's a little anecdotal. Let me give you some actual numbers. We we have done where we on a scale of one to nine we ask ask them how likely to vote. Um, and what we've seen recently is that, in fact, liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans are about the same. Um, that is also matched by CBS just did a survey um, where they showed that both parties have the same level of intensity. So that seems to have evened out. And, and, and again, I understand you know, right after the election, Democrats were, really were pretty heavy. Right? I mean, they, they, they thought they had a one race and surprise. Right? 
Um, but it seems like that begins to even out. Historically, the, the group that tends to fall off the most um, in, in an off-year election is uh, younger voters. Uh, to give you a sense, um, 18 to 20, this is from exit polls, 18 to 29-year-olds in presidential years will represent somewhere around 18 to 19 percent of the electorate. Um, and off-year elections, they'll represent somewhere around 12 to 13 percent. And obviously, at least at this point, hopefully this will change in the future, at this point, um, those tend to be, they tend to vote slightly more, slightly more, but they tend to vote more Democratic. Also, the CNN poll that came out in the last couple of days showed not only that it was the motivation level for Republicans was generally on par with Democrats, but that there was an increase in motivation on Republicans from March to May. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about voters' perceptions on healthcare. I saw that healthcare is the number one issue, but the feeling of long care is way down the bottom of that list. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Um, a couple of things. Let me, let me start with the cost side of it first a little bit and then we can get to some other people. Um, one of the things that we have found is you know, premiums are important, but deductibles are, are change behavior. Um, we've sat in rooms where we've had people say, I would give up my insurance or I afford my health care, right? which is just, it, it just sounds dissonant. Um, but the reason is because the deductibles are so high that they, they can't afford the insurance because they, have, they need that money for other things. Um, so so that, that, that sort of piece of the other thing that we've also heard people do, given the way premiums are structured, is they will structure their health care around the premium, or they're around the deductibles, right? And so um, they would, if they're going to have two operations, they try to jam them into the same year, so the deductible, I mean, so, so, so you've, got, you've got that whole, whole slide to it, too. I mean, clearly costs, costs are going up, in the end, and that's, that's difficult for people to manage in this environment. Uh, but that's true for virtually anything. Right? If we get gasoline prices going up, we can get a barrel of oil. Right? A barrel of oil is now above $70, right? So we can expect gas price increases. So, I mean, there are going to be some pressures in terms of the family budget. Look, one of the challenges that, that we've run into um, is that, and again, this goes back to that, that um, sort of transportation cost. Um, Basically, it was, does Obamacare stay or go? But Obamacare was the only sort of point in space that everybody was looking at. And to some degree, what we have to do as a party is to think through, so what is the center-right vision of healthcare? And what does that look like, and how do we get there? Um, part of that, I mean, what, I would suggest to you that, that the failure of Obamacare was really in the, I mean, here's the universe of healthcare. I'm going to put 40 more million people in there, right? And guess what? Supply and demand works. Right? You know, and so there, there's a lot of things you increase demand by that level. The one thing that Obamacare thought, and this is what's in the back from uh, Boston, Kruger, um, um, basically they thought you could manage demand, right? By knocking out the help, the high quality plans, right? Increasing the deductibles so people would use it less. They thought that you could manage demand and not have price go up. Well, healthcare, it's, if you ask the question, it doesn't work like that. You know, if you're sick, you got to go do something, and so you can't manage demand like that. And that was the ultimate failure, which is why everything is skyrocketed. So the challenge here for us is to think through, okay, so what does the center right healthcare system look like? Do we need an alternative? Um, and it's more than just simply getting rid of what's there. It's what, what are we actually going to do? Yeah, I was just going to ask, living in the bubble, right? We hear the palace entry all the time. 
and had nausea. Do people back home grow up, do they really care about the drama so much as the media would like us to think they do? They hear about the drama and they are aware of all of that, but ultimately, no. When you think about a lot of the stories that the news media is covering, it, it, people don't think that has anything to do with them. And in fact, some of the stories that they're covering, they view it as the media is trying to push an agenda on me. Because as we're pointing out, you know, what's happening in my family budget, <coughs> how am I going to manage cost of living, what I do about returns. So that's not to say those things don't, are not important, but people are trying to day to day. And, and along with, it's not that they're not paying attention to it, because it's sort of entertainment, right? right. It's sort of interesting to watch, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to enter into their decision-making process of money. Anything else? Last question. <laughs> so, what types of things have changed in polling since the 2016 election, like to a, I don't know, I know the same thing kind of happened in Kentucky with Matt Bevin, where like no polls showed him winning. Like, have, have there been changes in the way we do polling to try to get better results? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer that in a very different way, okay? Um, understand what you're watching is you're watching the ability to gather public opinion and that process structurally change, right? And so you're, 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 trying to figure out which polls work, which ones don't, because you're, you're watching that transition. A real simple example. Um, okay, going back to the you know, mid-last decade, right? being able to use landlines and do everything through landlines um, was certainly a reasonable way to gather that information. I will tell you right now, you couldn't do that. Right? You have to do a mix because the amount of people, have, the amount of people who don't have landlines is huge. Right? Okay, cell phones, interesting. But there are all sorts of laws around in terms of how you call people on cell phones and should be told you can't sort of do the longer in depth. So now what's happening is a lot of this is sort of moving online. Okay. When you get into online, what you're now dealing with is you are not just simply getting the quality of the interaction, right? Which is which is not bad. I mean if someone actually takes a survey online, you're actually getting a quality interview, but you're not getting a random interview. And so what you're now buying when you're doing this a large degree, and this is the national level, um, which you're sort of getting the individual's intellectual ability and, and knowledge, statistical knowledge, in terms of weighting the surveys properly, right? And so a lot of what you're seeing is that weighting. Um, some people are good at it, some people aren't, right? I mean, and so you, you just have to do that. In some cases, in some of you who are in congressional district, they're, they're still doing it through phone as sort of a combination. Um, you probably noticed that that's gotten pretty expensive uh, in contrast. Um, and uh, you're still not as sure because the rank that you're doing makes it both way online, uh, some, some of it online, some of it through cell phone. And so the challenge for everybody here, I mean, it's a challenge for us to just kind of understand it in terms of all this, but understand that we're in this transition period in terms of how people gather public opinion. So as a result, and you can see that you had a range of plus one to plus nine. Literally at the same time. A couple things, though, on, you know, there's been a lot of crit critiques of polling coming out of 2016 and what happened there, but a couple things on that. If you look at the exit polls and time to decision making, there was real movement in the last week or two toward Trump. So surveys that were not in the field in that last couple of weeks missed that. Um, the ones that were in the field before that could have showed very Clintonly, but, but that movement would have been missed if you were not in the field the last two weeks. And then secondly, um, you know, that there were a lot of problems with many of the state polls, but nationally, the, many of those polls were generally correct, and I think people should the media forgot when you have polls showing a two, three point lead 
um, within margin of error, that still opened up the possibility that Hillary Clinton could still lose if people lost sight of that possibility. A couple stats to back that up. Um, since 1856, the first time there was an R versus D race, there have been 10 races that have been 3% or closer. Right, four out of the ten were won by the person who didn't win the popular vote. Right, so when you're within three percent, I mean, there's a huge probability, possibility, um, that in fact the person um, without the popular vote can win. The other thing too, in terms of late decision making, this is really a stat. This is probably the thing because you saw those things like 538 saying 88 percent chance that Clinton was going to win. You know, the huge numbers. Well, part of that was again modeling um, this this dynamic. Literally 20 percent of the country had a negative view of both candidates. And one of the things that nobody could figure out was, okay, if you have a negative view of both, how do you actually decide, right? And, and when do you decide? And when do you decide? And so people, it took some time for them to work through it. To some degree, my sense was, people had models that assumed if you dislike both, that you would probably break even, and that's not what happened. Trump won in 47 and 30. I mean, it was a decisive win amongst those voters, and that gets back to the change dynamic. But having said that, if you're modeling that on the expectation, right, that it was going to split evenly, had it split evenly, she would have so going back to the earlier point about what does what does Trump job recruitment mean for this cycle, and that's what we say exercise in terms of making assumptions. It's not good, right? You just emphasize. I mean, having that job approval is not a good number, um, but but it's also one of those things. Again, if I told you um, we would have a Republican president who had sixty percent unfavorable during the campaign, you would have like sort of had a mirror in my head. <laughs> All right. Very good. Last question. Uh, do you think favorables and unfavorables have sort of, in general, lost some of their usefulness? When it comes to political individuals, right. well, look, when I'm looking at other things, let me take political individuals off the table. The answer is no. I mean, it gives a sense of whether somebody's favorable or unfavorable. I think what, what happens if you're a political person because you're associated with that, there's just a um, albatross around your neck, right? In terms of when you, and it's there. Having said that, it's real. Um, it may not be you personally, uh, and you see some people manage to sort of get beyond that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at this point, there is an albatross who really has in terms of being a political person at this point. Um, and listen, I, part of that is driven by the media for both sides, is the media managed to find the single worst thing about whether you're an R or D, right? I mean, the news story is like, okay, so it's, you know, whomever did this horrible thing, and that's all people ever see, they never see the positive side of it. At the end of it, you just have this. The other thing- So perhaps the baseline of what you look at has changed. Yeah. Than what it would have been yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, for what a good or bad thing. And so, so you have to look through it in that lens. I'm also gonna suggest to you too, um, candidates contribute to that because it's never like, why should you vote for me as being the dominant part of the end? It's like, why the other person is so horrible. So to some degree, our campaigns have to take some responsibility for that as well. Okay, thank you very much.